I am not one who has been born in the possession of knowledge. I am one who is fond of antiquity and earnest in seeking it there. Study the past if you would define the future. Confucius. Chapter 8. A Last Word. Caduceus probably gives rise to more questions than it does answers, which, if it should be the case, would be desirable. However, I mentioned in the introduction that it would not be a definitive text. It should be considered as a Japanese koan, a Buddhist technique to give the mind pause, to inspire thought, and an aid to meditation and contemplation. Examples of such would be, if a tree falls in the forest, and there is no one there to hear it, does it make a sound? Or what is the sound of one hand clapping? Throughout Caduceus there has been a continuous and constant thread to the evidence provided. Within the esoteric spiritual text discussed, there is the firm advice that one should seek the truth, knowledge, and wisdom. For me, it was asking the questions, researching and weighing subject matter in terms of science and history, and then, subsequently, in terms of religions and philosophy. In the chapter on esoteric spiritual texts, it was proposed that light was often a result of such a search for knowledge and meditation. In the chapter dealing with these spiritual philosophers, there were individuals of profound thought, of great contemplation and introspection, who acted on such advice and, as a result, were compelled to write about their experience, and in particular, to describe their experience as awe-inspiring and also associated with light. In the chapter on Kundalini, further notable individuals were identified who had had this experience and who also associated it with light. So powerful were their experiences that some of these individuals went on to found the religions and spiritual movements that we have today. Furthermore, the near-death experience is one which also solidly includes the element of light as part of it. William James suggested of the mystic experience that, leaving aside the question of the truth of these, we should surely on the basis of the undeniable action and influence gathered from this information view it as, at least, worthy of consideration, but at best as amongst the most important, tangible and biological functions of mankind. Plato used the discourses of Socrates to supplement his own philosophical ideas, much like Lao Tzu, who used the maxims of earlier sages to illustrate his sentiments. I have similarly used a wide range of quotations in Caduceus, not only to provide substance to my assertions, but also to serve as mouthpiece to my contentions. Whilst there are many authors who have written on specific subjects included in Caduceus, I felt that there was no one book out there which brought all the elements together as I have tried to do. I believe that it is only by taking a universal view that can we come to something of any solidity closely aligned to the truth. So what then is this unifying and universal light? That which seemingly can be accessed via the Kundalini experience or the near-death experience. 
that which has been presented to us since time immemorial in so many spiritual and religious texts by so many individuals of a spiritual and or philosophical persuasion. Might this light be heaven as recounted in Plato's myth of Ur? This shaft of light which stretches from heaven to earth? Or, as it further suggests, that this light is the bond of heaven and holds its circumference together? Might it be God, a divine entity, an omniscient entity? It is seen in esoteric spiritual texts in various forms. In the Tanakh, God is described as a consuming fire. In the New Testament, God is light. In the Quran, God is the light. In the Bhagavad Gita, the radiance of the Supreme Spirit is comparable to the light if a thousand suns rose in the sky. And in the text of Taoism, Tao or the Way is described as the light. The Zoroastrians claim that God is the light and the source of light, indeed in scripture around the globe and within a vast majority of cultures and sects, such as the Gnostics, its respective omniscient entity or fundamental underlying principle of life is referred to as light. The question arises, do we just wave aside all these accounts of the experiences of the originators of the religious and spiritual thoughts and dismiss them as mere coincidence or metaphor? The answer may be best left with the listener to respond by forming their own thoughts and opinions. Some individuals who read spiritual texts like to be told what to do and how to act. But one important conclusion here is that it is the knowledge of the self and knowledge gained by the individual that is essentially required. In this book, I have set out to provide as much transcendent evidence from a variety of sources and angles. It was Plato who suggested that reason will only take you so far. At some point, one has to take a new and all-encompassing perspective on what is available, but in my view, the preponderance of evidence suggests that, at very least, there is something else. What is certain is that this light has been at the emergence of all our religions and spiritual movements. James's comment was that the founders of every church owed their power and influence originally to the fact of their direct personal communion with the divine. What also seems certain is that when we consider the studies of Moody and others on the near-death experience, this light awaits us at the end of our physical life. As James further stated, these experiences offer hypotheses which may form an insight into the meaning of life. These accounts, he states, tell of the supremacy of the ideal, of vastness, of union, of safety, and of rest. They offer us hypotheses, hypotheses which we may voluntarily ignore, but which, as thinkers, we cannot possibly upset. The supernaturalism and optimism to which they would persuade us may, interpreted one way or another, be after all the truest of insights into the meaning of this life. In an increasingly difficult world of fragile economies and of the ongoing deterioration of the world's ecosystem, 
a significantly different mental approach is essential. However, it is imperative that the initiation of such change must originate from deep within the individual. Only from a change to an individual's consciousness and conscientiousness will such a change on a global basis come about. A new approach, a new perspective is demanded, along with the formation of a new reality. The confrontation of the self is of utmost importance, since it is only with that knowledge that there will be individual change and a shift in consciousness. Furthermore, it is only by this individual process that this essential shift in world consciousness will also arise. A complete departure from this present global spiritual morass is needed because all that has been is not working now, to the extent that although it may have worked, it can most certainly be improved. Indeed, at times it seems with the evolution of the human species that there has been a devolution in consciousness. It is therefore imperative that there must be significant change to the way that we approach life individually and as a world population, and that we liberate ourselves from this worldwide spiritual quagmire in which we find ourselves. Even many self-described spiritual individuals are not as comfortable as perhaps they profess to be, and, while it is preferable that they exist, for they have made steps in the right direction, for those that need it, perhaps they will find some relevant foundation or context from the contents of this book. We can no longer be complacent, our minds at rest with scientific tenets, which for many of us provide little substance and comfort. Nor should we find a peace within a blind faith, within one of the many religious systems which all stem from undoubtedly one source. Neither system, religious or scientific, is fully formed in answering all that we lack in knowledge. The gaps in our psyche are not filled to any satisfactory degree. However, one cannot know oneself if there is no perspective, no knowledge of our present environment or from whence we came. It is essential that we possess knowledge from antiquity to find the greatest truth, or at very least, the least corrupted. And this needs, like everything else in life, the requisite effort. Theoretical knowledge without practical application is redundant. This knowledge must be absorbed into subconscious knowledge. It is essential that, in attaining a more accurate perspective, we are aware of cultures of antiquity and ancient spiritual texts. We would all benefit from less escapism and a concentration on more meaningful and profound matters. Indeed, in my view, the world of non-fictional work is particularly fascinating, with greater wonders to behold than that of fiction. One might ask, how in this fast-paced, materially-based society are we ever to accommodate such an endeavour? Someone said that there is always time. It is only the lack of inclination that prevents us. It may be that this is not for you, and if so, then so be it. If one is willing, however, one can find the opportunities. Watch less television, read on your commute, and if you drive, listen to audiobooks, and so on. Suffice it to say that the greater the endeavour, the greater the rewards, and the greater the number of the world population that gets on board, the greater the transition, 
the more complete the shift in global and collective consciousness, or as Plato described it in Timaeus, the world soul. Carl Jung was once criticized on the grounds that only the privileged few can allow themselves the degree of introversion Jung allowed himself, and that to benefit fully from Jungian-like analysis, one should be relatively affluent, well-read and familiar with Greek mythology, articulate and good at the visualization of images, as well as having a relatively strong ego to be able to confront the instincts and images of the unconscious. In other words, that Jung's procedure, not dissimilar to that suggested here, was designed particularly for a cultured, leisured, creative elite. My response is that meditation costs nothing, and today there is a vast amount of information available on the internet if one does not have access to libraries. Worldwide travel is more available and affordable than it ever has been. At the same time, you need not become an ascetic to give up everything and to live just below the snow line in the Himalayas seeking arms. There is no greater reward than treading such a path and triumphing spiritually in this challenging and material world. Juan Mascara describes this in a striking way, comparing it to reaching the top of a mountain and having the path illuminated by glimpses of light. He states, This is the great adventure and the great discovery. No one can do it for us. Until we have reached the top of the mountain, we cannot see in full glory the view that lies beyond. But glimpses of light illumine our path to the mountain. These glimpses of light give us faith, because then we know, not with the external knowledge of reading books, but with that certainty of faith that comes from moments of inner life. But if in intellectual pride or in laziness of dullness we deny the light, thereby denying ourselves, how can we avoid being in the darkness? Such studious endeavor may not provide definitive answers, but then again neither does science nor do the religious systems of today. Indeed, anything that is definitively systematic is a less valuable path. The greater the understanding of the self by the self, the greater the peace, the settledness, the perspective of the individual. It is better to rest and be within knowledge based on fact and best evidence. This provides more accurate perspective. Rather than not being at peace, embracing imposed knowledge, parameters and defined by tenets which provide none of this. Even if the scientific fraternity were to provide their holy grail, a unified theory, this would be of no greater benefit to mankind. Psyches remain the same, the global lack of consciousness and conscientiousness remains the same, and its revelation would be of no material value or benefit in this conflicted world. As William James states in Varieties, weight, movement, velocity, direction, position, what thin, pallid, uninteresting ideas. At one point in my research, I came across someone, I forget who, that suggested that it was the easy way out of the consideration of life to contemplate on matters spiritual and religious, and to tread such a path. They suggested that the way science provided was of more solidity and more comprehensive. Naturally, I disagree, and were I to see that individual now, 
I would say that the easy way out was the path of solely embracing scientific tenets. Today, I smile at such a comment, for the study that I have undertaken was far more arduous and transcendent than a path of scientific thought could ever provide. However, there were times when I wished that my mind could have rested cosily, comfortably, and unchallenged within defined scientific tenets, and not to have to apply the profound questions that I have put to myself and to the purpose of life answers to which science could not begin to answer. Again, William James summarizes this point on science aptly when he states, Science has ended by utterly repudiating the personal point of view. She catalogues her elements and her laws indifferent as to what purpose may be shown forth by them, and constructs her theories quite careless of their bearing on human anxieties and fates. Later, James refers to the difference between a rational consciousness and other forms of consciousness. He states, Our normal waking consciousness, rational consciousness as we call it, is but one special type of consciousness, whilst all about it, parted by the flimsiest of screens, there lie potential forms of consciousness entirely different. We may go through life without suspecting their existence, but apply the requisite stimulus, and at a touch they are there in all their completedness. Another similar view is given by the classic Islamic writer Al-Ghazali, who stated that very stupid and ignorant would be the man who would wish to discover in them a wisdom by means of reason. But does one need to absolutely know all by definition? Perhaps this is not meant to be, but we can at very least find ourselves in a state of realized confusion, comfortable in the remaining mysteries, still always seeking and honing our thoughts and ourselves, but comfortable in our being. The first stage is to cast our gaze backwards towards antiquity to enable us to make positive steps in the future. To my mind, it is preferable to take from the mythology of antiquity and spiritual and philosophical subjects when cross-referenced across the world, rather than from science, which seems to have a perpetual line of thought that must conform, it seems, to some previous scientific tenet with the omission of all else. It is more concerned with proving and enhancing prior theory than the truth and the real essence of being. As Einstein said, the search for truth and knowledge is one of the finest attributes of man, although often it is most loudly voiced by those who strive for it least. In The World as I See It by Einstein, he states, it is not the fruits of scientific research that elevate a man and enrich his nature, but the urge to understand the intellectual work creative or receptive. Surely an open and inquiring mind and that of transcendent thought based upon the weight of evidence provided in antiquity, in fact, offers a greater degree of truth about the nature of life. Indeed, the sole embrace of scientific tenets provide us with an excuse to escape from a thorough introspection and general inspection of things, rather than assisting in finding ourselves. It leads to non-action, 
in the discovery of the self. Against this, Richard Rorty, the well-known contemporary American philosopher, has suggested an opposite point of view, that it is not whether our ideas correspond to some fundamental reality, but whether they help us carry out practical tasks and create a fairer and more democratic society. As you might expect, I do not accept this at all, and hopefully this book has shown a variety of overlap in history, philosophical and religious thoughts and anomalies central to us the world over. It is solely when we are able to solidly identify world factors we all possess in common and founded in fact that there may be an end to the ridiculous, never-ending acrimony and conflicts across the globe. Only then will we be able to learn from the Cain and Abel biblical story and to find that we are in mind and, indeed, our brothers and sisters keeper. Only then will we find ourselves in a fairer and more conscientious global society. There must be cessation of the physical and violent imposition upon neighbouring and foreign nations in an attempt to move them onto some path of democracy or some such. As we have seen time and time again, not only does this not work, but the ramifications of such acts are far more detrimental than the best of intentions provide. It is solely via education, the finding of common ground by all nations and religions and by the accurate knowledge and lessons of antiquity that a better existence for us all, the world over, will be availed. Perhaps over and above all, there would be great value in the imposition upon us all of the quotation, Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Surely then we would be closer to that ideal world existence and would better achieve an end to the spate of violence in the crimes like pedophilia, rape, murder and wars and terrorism and all crimes against mankind and generally achieve a greater level of conscientiousness both individually and globally. Unfortunately, should the suggestion presented in this book be initiated, there would be no room for procrastination. On the basis of changes of ages and periods referred to earlier, then this is believed by some to occur again and imminently. If the Mayans and the transition which they prophesied is accurate, this world will change again and there are schools of thought that suggest that the time of change might be less traumatic if we were better spiritually prepared and developed resulting in a smoother transition stemming from a global shift in our collective consciousness. Could Kundalini, and in particular this light, provide a unifying force for the world? From time immemorial to present day, the world has been plagued by religious conflict, one group seeking to violently impose their beliefs and interpretations upon another. The identification and study of Kundalini as experienced by all religions and their messiahs and prophets, the forerunners of their respective religious thought, could provide us with a unique opportunity. Indeed, an opportunity to find a unity in belief and a common ground for relating to an omniscient entity. It was William Blake who said that all religions are one. I agree entirely and feel that 
At their very core, they are all essentially the same and of one source. Perhaps an even more pertinent comment here would be Mahatma Gandhi's God has no religion. If we choose to interpret and worship in our individual ways, that is our prerogative. However, we should seize this opportunity to dispense with the ridiculous and vicious downward spiral as a result of the perceived differences of religious thought. I hope that there might be light at the end of the tunnel. The Beginning